Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. This chick is just three weeks old and a little bit wobbly on its feet. Its vast bill means it has trouble balancing. It won't be able to fly or even walk properly for several weeks. All right, who doesn't love David Attenborough? I mean, I'd get him to read me a bedtime story if I could. It seems like common sense. Learn more about the planet, and you'll want to take care of it. But does learning lead to action? Let's find out. Hi, I'm Rohit Joseph, a journalist who happens to love nature, and I'm trying not to contribute to its destruction. And I'm Johanna Wagstaff, a scientist, a fellow Attenborough lover, whose whole philosophy when it comes to science communication is if I can get people to learn and be enthusiastic about nature and science, maybe I can get them to act on it as well. This is 10 Minutes to Save the Planet. And the thing is, we actually do know how to save the planet. We've known what steps we need to take to solve the problem of climate change for a long time. The UN has 10 of these tangible takeaways, but we suck at remembering them and we suck at making them happen because our human brains are weird and we make really strange and stupid decisions. And that's all of us. Including us, Joe and (laughs) Roe, right here. I mean... Our flawed selves, we're going to take on the challenge as well with the help of an expert in human behavior Mm -hmm. and sustainability. Uh, We'll hopefully be able to help you and ourselves reshape our weird brains and make these steps part of our lives, changing our behavior bit by bit so that we don't all die. I'm Jiaying Zhao, but I go by Jay-Z. I'm a professor of psychology and sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Think of Jay-Z as our life coach for climate change. We need one because unless we make some serious changes, we're hooped. Learning equals action, but only for some people, not for everybody. I think for somebody who cares about climate change and the environment and the planet, then the more information actually is helpful um, to a certain extent. Um, So I think, you know, Educating people about climate change, what are the drivers for climate change, what are the consequences of climate change, that can be helpful if they want to take action and want to learn. But for those who don't believe in climate change or are skeptical to start with, that information is going to backfire. And that information has to be delivered in the right way uh, with the right amount by the right person uh, because we also know that the doom and gloom narrative doesn't work. It further depresses people, makes people anxious and afraid and paralyzed. Educating ourselves about science and climate change is one thing, but how do we go from watching Attenborough, I'm just going to say it, stoned or no stoned, no judgment here, to actual (laughs) action? And we've got 10 minutes to tell you. And as Jay-Z said, I mean, we really have to think about individuals to find that answer. And I had a big turning point with a local stewardship group called Free the Fern. 
I went from being enthusiastic about these huge, big picture scientific takeaways like uh, how much methane is going to be released when we reach that tipping point under the surface of the water uh, to something as simple as removing invasive species in my own backyard. Hi, my name is Grace Nombrado. So as the name implies, English ivy, um, it's invasive because number one, it's not a native plant of this area. It's obviously from England, Um, but also when it's introduced, it spreads and it completely engulfs an area. There is no natural predator to stop the spread of the ivy other than humans. Uh, But it's it's so invasive because it spreads not only on the ground in a mat, which crowds out all the native plants that are on the ground, but it also will climb up the the trees as well. And eventually it will engulf the whole tree, which doesn't allow sunlight to get on the tree and also creates a lot of weight on the tree. So when there's a wind, uh, the tree can be susceptible to breaking and falling more. Um, So it's really dangerous to our forest system. Can you show me an example of an ivy bound tree and and what's happened to it? A great example here, it actually looks like almost like a giant lollipop or a mushroom because the top of this tree has actually been completely engulfed with ivy to consume the top of it. So this is a small, smaller Douglas fir tree. Unfortunately, it's one of our native Douglas firs of the area. The city actually came and cut the top of the tree off. Because it was a hazard? Yeah, it was a hazard to the trail area. So the best practice is actually to just cut the ivy uh, vines at about chest height, and that will eventually dry and die on what's left of the tree. If it's alive, the tree has a chance to perhaps keep growing. And here I was thinking vines and ivy just really set cool vibes. Turns out (laughs) it turns out it's just plant violence. Plant violence, yes. And something as simple as clearing it away can protect those 150-year-old Dougie firs that uh, ultimately, you know, keep our neighborhoods shaded and our our ecosystems intact. But I got to tell you, that was just the beginning of a new relationship with nature for me. We have vine maple. We have the Oregon grape. We have uh, salal, which is the beautiful blueberries. I want to encourage everybody to not be intimidated by by plants in nature. So I used to be plant blind, which is the idea you would walk down a trail, you'd see plants, but you were unfamiliar with what the name of the plant is. So I've heard a phrase, if you can name it, you can love it. So um, just like with people, if you, if you know their name, you have more care for that person. So when you name a plant, you can start to love it and you, you actually develop an emotional connection to it. And I noticed this about myself because I can look at a plant and name it, I care what it is and what it's doing and the connection between the other plants around it. And uh, I develop an emotional connection with nature, which makes me want to care for it and take care of it. So this really works for me, but it it doesn't work for everyone. Jay-Z, our wonderful expert, says you got to think about the tangible benefits of today. If we can translate the benefits to the environmental benefits in in personal terms, like this is going to clean up our air, we're, it's going to reduce pollution. It will reduce a bunch of, you know, um, uh, health diseases. Um, it will make us healthier and happier at the same time. I think that will resonate more with people as opposed to, so we can avoid a dis- catastrophe in twenty, well, in a hundred or two hundred years down the line. And there's more science about how our brains can actually get motivated or stuck. And let's look into that. 
Applied Energy is uh, one of these uh, science journals that's looked into whether the values you have for nature actually affect your action in any way. So big surprise, Johanna. They did a study. <laughs> they studied all these British households. And it turns out, yeah, if you have positive associations with nature, you're going to, you know, make those little changes in your household so that you're using less energy. Uh, again, it kind of confirms something I think we could have all guessed, which is if you love it, you tend to learn about it and even act on it. But it's not quite as simple as that. There's another journal, Frontier Psychology, that tried to complicate things a bit because there's a lot of correlation when it comes to our love of nature and maybe wanting to do something about it. But they also wanted to see if there was other things that influence us. As it turns out, learning can help. But it's not just about book smarts. It's also about the life experiences you have. It's about the memories you have with nature. Maybe going camping with your father really put those nice associations with mm. nature into your brains and they've kind of stuck around for a long time. And then that can help you create intention and goals that you actually want to achieve. It's, it's not quite clear cut whether learning equals action, but it certainly helps. It's not a blanket, one-size-fits-all one solution for everyone, and that's okay. For me, I love hiking. I love going on trails. There's programs in my community where you can actually help maintain the trails, clear those invasives out, and just educate people on how not to make them a mess. Does that help in the huge picture of climate change and potentially staving off doom? Not immediately, but if you can get people to care and be passionate about the trails that they're out and about in, then that certainly does something. Clear the pathways and create positive pathways. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yep. Uh, well, I think that's about our time, eh? That's it. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And I'm Rohit Joseph. And that's 10 Minutes to Save the Planet. You've been listening to 10 Minutes to Save the Planet from CBC Podcasts. The show is written and hosted by Rohit Joseph and me, Johanna Wagstaff. Our producer is Teresa Lalonde. Sound design by Jill Constantine. Fabiola Carletti is our digital coordinating producer with assistance by Sean Lloyd. Our managing producer is Damon Fairless. Additional audio courtesy of the BBC. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Nurani is the director. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.